Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-GM, McGill. It is the 21st of February, 2023, and this is episode 140 of Compare and Campaign. Um, how's it going, McGill? Oh, you know, Tom, I guess I'm doing okay. No big complaints. How are you? I'm doing all right. We were just uh, revisiting uh, something from something I remembered is a game called Creepy Freaks from the creators of Hero Clicks and Mage Knight and Horror Clicks, WizKids. It was going to be their like uh, cartoony, gross out game for little kids. Um, never really took off, but we got one wave out of it, and I, as we just learned today, got a little promotional cartoon out of it, too. This is just fascinating stuff, and uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah, I've talked on the podcast before about my recent obsession with Savage Mondo Blitzers, the underrated, discontinued, gross-out, like, Hot Wheels, die-cast, monsters-on-wheels toy line from the 80s that I somehow missed out on, uh, but I think it's amazing. And uh, Creepy Freaks, it's just throw that on the pile too, because uh, you clued me into this mere moments before we started recording, and already I'm just going, like, I'm already on eBay going, I gotta buy a sealed package of this, because this is just too good. I have to think that the the fault here is something to do with uh, WizKids advertising or marketing rollout because between Creepy Freaks and Horror Clicks, which is another game we've talked about in the past, uh, there are all these games that man, I, I would have been all about this when they were in their heyday, when they were being made. Somehow you know, I missed out. You know what it really reminds me of is uh, Telltale, the situation that Telltale got into. Where you know you saw Telltale over the course of a year buying or, or or doing all these huge licensed games like they're they're making uh, Game of Thrones, Borderlands, Batman, uh, yeah, you know Back everything to the future, that they made. yeah, and then and then suddenly it was just like they they crashed like everything sort of fell apart for them, and I feel like WizKids there was a time where they just like were in a very similar position where like you can see they had they had a mech warrior game they had a crimson skies game they had creepy freaks i was mentioning they had sports clicks a licensed uh like major league baseball uh clicks game um they uh like there's so many um and then all of them just sort of like died off and now oh there was a a halo action clicks um man this is another one i was looking at recently and i forgot to mention this was one that got like two sets out of it uh there was gonna be a third but there was a shadow one a, a shadow run clicks game called oh, wow. shadow run duels but this one the waves only had like six figures each but they were like action figure sized and they had like uh changeable 
pieces. So like like they would come just like an action figure. They would come like with different equipment and weapons and stuff, and also like different hands that you could slot in and stuff. And like all of it was like part of a very complicated like clicks based uh, sort of one on one uh, like shadow runs fighting game. Uh, I mean, obviously I never played it, so I can't talk too much about what it was like, but I, I mean, that was another one that like, again, they did two, two, two sets. They were going to do a third never happened. Um, like there's, there's, I'll say, I'll say here, I'm on the page on Wikipedia for, for clicks miniatures. And like, it's got the list of clicks games include and like creepy freaks is here it's one of those red links on wikipedia that has no article you know oh, um wow same thing with sports clicks and mlb sports clicks which are less listed separately tune clicks is also a, a red article um but blue articles we got crimson skies which is actually the it links to like the overall property of crimson skies i don't know if you know crimson skies no it's like um, World War One, like biplane dogfighting, okay, cool. but like there was like an Xbox game for it, and like uh, yeah, it's it's been around. It's like there have been video games and stuff. Um, there was Halo Action Clicks, which also this one just links to an article about Halo. Um, well, Tom, I think you know what you need to do, right? What's that? I think you need to make the articles that those links would link to i mean i'm not the i i don't have the expertise i can say like oh sure you do i mean you might have to do some more research but like you you've certainly got uh got the facts at least enough of them to have something's better than nothing man so i i'll say that i remember people i I don't know if I remember pe seeing people playing Crimson Skies, but I remember seeing the the boxes at the store. I've obviously I've seen all sorts of like people still play Hero Clicks uh, enough to keep the game going. Um, I don't know if I ever saw Horror Clicks played. Very similar to Creepy Freaks, I got the like promotional pack, or I got some of the promotional figures, but I never actually played it. Um, I played in, like, actual, like, there was regular Sunday games of Mage Knight at the hobby store, and my brother was pretty into that. Like, he, I still have my brother's big old uh, Mage Knight collection that I use for all sorts of stuff. But, like, so I actually played Mage Knight, so I definitely saw that played. I never saw Shadowrun Duels played. Um, like, and... But I did see the Mech Warrior one played. That's what I'll say about that. Is that like out of all of these, the ones that I remember actually seeing people play were Hero Clicks, of course, Mage Knight, and Mech Warrior. And everything else is like, I don't know, like somebody must have played them somewhere, but like like it's crazy to me there's there's this ongoing online fan base for horror clicks. Like um, that's still, uh, like they, they make up their own monsters and stuff. I can't say I'm too surprised about that one. 
horror clicks always seemed like it was destined to be a cult thing anyway. It makes sense that there'd be a devoted cult fan base now. I suppose so. It's just like, I don't know. It's, it seems rare to me that you would have one of these games where like it goes at production and then not only do people keep playing it, but they start like expanding upon it. Um, I don't think I've seen that happen with Mage Knight, although maybe it has, and I just don't know about it. Hmm. The crazy thing about Mage Knight is that now WizKids sells like a, a Mage Knight, one of those very complex board games, and it's Mage Knight, and that Mage Knight, it's like, it's as if they've tried to erase the existence of the old mage knight by to, by just putting that center stage like if you search mage knight the only one that they make or really acknowledge still is that one but like for years they did tons of mage knight there's so much mage knight there was a mage knight computer game don't know much think, about it. there's I mage knight comics that, but... huh it's it is fascinating like i i totally get what drives you to look into this stuff because it, the kind of like a dead franchise that has a devoted fan base and it was everywhere for a hot second and then just kind of faded into obscurity i love that kind of thing i just like lists i like uh <laughs> if i go to if i'm gonna make a game or a campaign it's like what am i gonna build this campaign on i'm gonna need a list and i'm gonna break the list down into the different things so maybe i'll do a creepy freaks campaign and uh every adventure similar to pokemon how every episode all the good ones anyways they had a new pokemon introduced um out of the list of 151 Plus, uh, you know, your, your Creepy Freaks campaign, every adventure, is a new Creepy Freaks featured. You get you 56 just... sessions out of that, <laughs> at least. You just really have a talent. I've noticed this pattern, Tom, where you will discover some old game, and even if it is not an ongoing thing, like, you don't even need, you don't even need a list you just find something like, oh, you know, you ever heard of this thing called Creepy Freaks? Let's play some Creepy Freaks. All right, moving on. <laughs> Man, <laughs> see, this is the thing is that I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to play Creepy Freaks unless I like, yeah, like even if I bought all the Creepy Freaks online, like I don't know who I play it with except like on a Me. rare occasion when we get together <laughs> somehow like it'd be better for us if it was on tabletop simulator but well, you could just get all the creepy freaks and you know whatever battle map it uses and then set it up with a webcam pointed at the board and i'll just dictate my moves see what i am way more likely to do and this is the sort of thing that i did with like starfaring is i would instead like i just described with that like creepy freaks campaign is just like take the content of it and just translate it into something that is easier for me to work with like a role-playing game because a role-playing game i could just make it all up all i need to know is like the gist of what i'm taking from the the source material so all I need to know is like, like I I don't need to know the exact 
stats of uh, monster under the bed. I can see what they look like. I did see what even what they are like in the cartoon, and then I can just use monster under the bed as a primary monster in a Dungeons and Dragons dungeon or something. What obscure game will Tom uncover next and make me obsessed with inadvertently? Make it Man. a good one. It's got to have some like gross thing in it. Uh You know, I don't I don't generally go for that gross out stuff. I didn't even realize that it was about gross out stuff so much until I like like I may have known that back when it was originally when I had the figures cuz I had the Snotman. But, like, I think that in my memory of it, I hadn't remembered that, like, there was a gross-out element to it. But then seeing the cartoon, it's like, oh, yeah, this is about, like, gross-out cartoon stuff. Oh, yeah, we've been over this before about how you don't actually go for the, the gross-out stuff as much as I do. I was, I mean, man, I was raised in the 80s. That was the, the decade of, of gross-out properties for kids. I feel like... Ninja Turtles is probably the least gross-out based, and it's still got a lot of gross-out content to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, G.I. Joe's not gross-out. Well, I guess that depends on your feelings about a good old-fashioned snow job. Oh, wow. That, uh... Really gotta hand it to you there. Miguel, that was, that was something. <laughs> I don't know why I'm having so much trouble emoting over it, but like that was really something. <laughs> um, so I suggested that this time you do your side of the episode first. Sure, but you know what? It's it's not even going to end up being my side of the episode. We're, we're we're going to the RPG danger room, but once again, like you know, all this talk about creepy freaks and horror clicks and you grabbing a game system and running with it immediately, often so much faster than I do. Like, just look at what happened with Essence 20. I was like, hey, hey Essence Transformers RPG, this is ridiculous. Because I and, got all this time on my hands. <laughs> and then you're just like, ridiculous. I'm going to design three characters, buy the source book, and start plotting out ideas. So, um... We're, we're going to have another one of those situations on our hands here because a little while ago, uh, before I talked about Dread, the Jenga RPG, uh, you had suggested I profile a, 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 a game design system, I guess it is. It's not an RPG system itself. It's like a system through which you can design RPGs called Caltrop Core. And uh, listeners, you can find out all about Caltrop Core at caltropcore.com. It's entirely free. You can like get the the system SRD just right there from uh, it's on itch.io, but you can find the link to it on caltropcore.com. And the premise is really simple. You just use D4s, and uh, often it it. it you just use D4s. It, that's really all you need to know because then the, the document, the resource document, talks about like different types of RPGs, token-based games versus stat-driven games where you, you, know, you have a character with stats. And, you got to uh, come in here using the whole meat pretty soon. 
Yeah, pretty you soon. You notice that? <laughs> what, what do you mean? Well, so you've seen some of what I've done with the Caltrop Core system. Oh, yeah, core yeah, system, of course. And Caltrop Core talks about the difference between stat-based games or to- token-based games. And, and mine, found... is a, mine is immediately like, ¿Por qué no los dos? Yeah, now you, you immediately found a compromise where you get to do both. But uh, talking about stat-based games versus token-based games, uh, I mean, this is how I found out about the game Dread. It's used as an example of a, a like a almost like an outlier. I guess you could consider it a token-based game with the blocks being a collective pool of tokens. But uh, it was mentioned in that regard just as sort of an outlier where the... Uh, the designer, I should actually uh, mention, Lex Kim Bobro, the designer says, most RPGs... Titanomachy. Yeah, Titanomachy RPG at, I guess that's Twitter. Um, but yeah, the author just mentions that, you know, aside from weird outliers like Dread, most RPGs are either dice-based or token-based. And then this SRD provides... Just examples of how you could use an all D4 driven system to be a token based RPG or uh, a stat based RPG. Um, I'll read actually just the the plug and play page because it's just one page. It's very straightforward and it gives like the overview of how to use this document. But as Tom has said, like, I don't think we even really need to talk about the demo game ideas from this resource document because Tom has been developing an entire game based around this. I'm happy to talk about that super simple demo game, though. Well, we could, uh, but first I just, I'll I'll get your thoughts on it, but first, plug and play. A little cheat sheet to get started. Remember, none of this is law. So again, you know, rules, rules can be flexible here. We are using this as a framework to design an RPG. Not to design a campaign, but like to actually design the game system. So you need a genre. You need a tone. You know, is it happy? Is it sad? Is it grimdark? Goals of the players, if any. Something like City of Mist, the goals of the players would be like investigate the mysteries in the City of Mist and try to find the balance between your logos and mythos. Uh, if it is a stat-driven game, pick a number of stats and name each one. Um, there is an example here. Uh, body, mind, soul are examples of stats. Um, will the game use a class system? I'm pretty sure that's literally what, uh, like, BESM, the, the Tristat game used. Yeah. And and you can... Um, like, it's, it's interesting reading over these rules and just sort of going like, oh, okay. So something like... You know, I kept thinking of World of Darkness games. World of Darkness games are all D6s, but like just swap out the D4s and you could probably still make it work with a few tweaks. World of Darkness games are all D10s. Are all they? They're all D10s? Were they forged, ever D6s? Forged in the Dark forged games the dark are games. all D6s. My mistakes. All this darkness. All this darkness, man. All this darkness. Um, But yeah, so... Uh, you know, will this game be a class system, a pick list, or a combination of both? What is the core gameplay loop? And what does this gameplay loop say about your values? 
And then the idea of a token-based game. What area of gameplay do tokens help resolve? How do characters acquire tokens? What can a character expend tokens to do? And what does this type of exchange say about your values? So, I don't know, man. Do you want to, like, do you want to talk about the demo game in here? Or should we, I, feel, I really feel like the, the thing to do is just to talk about what you've been building. Because I'd like to start with the demo game. It's very simple. Sure. Shouldn't take us very long. So, um... This this demo build is just a like a fantasy adventuring game. Um, it so you know what I'll just I'll I'll use the author's own words here. First, pick a genre. I'm thinking fantasy, a common reference point. Fantasy games are often stat driven, so that will be the type of game generated here. And this uses the three stats that I mentioned before: body. You roll on your body stat to resolve risky physical actions. Mind, roll to resolve rigorous mental actions. And then soul, roll to resolve precarious emotional actions. Start out with one in each stat. You cannot go above three. This number represents how many d4s you roll for each stat. Uh, they provide a handy probability page uh, to... Man, that thing's so good. Yeah, it, it really, really handy. Like percentage, the percentage of rolling a four, if you roll one d four, is twenty five percent, and so on and so forth. So you can really fine tune. Saved me so much trouble of like having to play test to understand what the range of stats should be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the probability page, a big help, but uh, you can use it to then understand or fine tune like just how the roles in your game work. In this demo build, um, they want to give your character a, a fantasy upbringing, uh, which, uh, which overlaps with the idea of fantasy races, but applies to any increased attribute as a result of where you're from. You add one stat related to your upbringing. And there's a, a demo warrior build that, uh, or demo a few demo builds of characters where they... Do they talk about the upbringing here? I guess they don't. I guess the other... Yeah, I thought it was a class thing that they introduced, as they introduced three basic classes. Yeah, it looks like instead they're doing classes, but they serve the same purpose. Like in the demo build, if you pick a warrior, your body stat increases by one. So the the function is the same, even if in the uh, the text they call it an upbringing versus a class. Health, you don't need to track health unless you want to. In fantasy RPGs, hit points are a common way to create stakes. Since we have a lot of D4s, we can just build a system around that die. Everyone has four health. You use a D4 to track it. I like that. I like the idea of using it like a Magic the Gathering life counter. Um, adjust it when you take damage. Decide what happens when you take damage at one health, as well as how characters die if they even do. Then uh, combat, fantasy adventuring game typically features combat, but what kind do you want? Fast, maybe combat is resolved in a single roll. This lends itself to a narrative first combat where, you know, a three would mean the character wins, but things get complicated. Four is a big success. If you want something more tactical, you could try something like this. You roll body on the following table when engaging in combat. Each die resolves individually. If you roll a one, a three, and a four, you'd take two damage from the roll of one and one damage from the three for a total of three damage, and then you'd also deal three damage. And here's the table, the, the sample table for combat, which is 
just four results, one for each side of the die. If you roll a one, you take two damage as the opponent counters your attack. If you roll a two, you do not hit, and you're in the same position as before. If you roll a three, you take one damage, in the, you deal and take one damage in the scrap, and then a four, you deal two damage. Play with the damage table to your game's needs. The above reflects the Caltrop core degrees of success, but something like this would be more suitable for a traditional fantasy RPG. Uh, on a one, you take one damage. On a two, you do not hit. On a three, you deal one damage. And a four, you deal two damage. So really, the only difference is what happens on a three. Instead of deal one, take one, you only deal one. Oh, yeah, the classes are on the page after that, I think. The the classes, yes, but I was looking for like a demo character build uh, right. where where they would mention the upbringing, and I guess we don't fully get I just one. want to highlight the classes also have special abilities. So like the warrior has tough. Any damage they take is reduced by one. Rogue, uh, I like that you get to choose whether body or mind is the stat that you increase. Um, and then you get street smart, which is you roll body plus mind to sneak around, pick locks, get information, and steal small items. Uh, you got elemental bolt for a wizard and all that. It's 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 cool. It's basic it's RPG stuff. Yeah, it's very cool. And uh, something I did want to mention too, Tom, is uh, I had said this to you a little while ago, and I don't know if you fully agree, but I was looking at this and I go, I love this because ultimately in Dungeons and Dragons, even if you're rolling a d20, there are only really four different possible results, which is like critical failure failure success and critical success right so why are yeah. we just doing it all with a d4 <laughs> i mean pretty pr pretty uh wide range of uh probability there between uh needing one in 20 to get a critical hit or critical failure and needing one in four yeah but you know what if you're rolling five d4 <laughs> maybe it balances out I mean, uh, the answer I, I think that. is no. How <laughs> about that? Stati statisticians listening, getting pissed off at me just saying that. Um, add a leveling up system if you'd like. Some options I've seen are story-based advancement, which is the the milestone advancement system that I know some people use. Scaling experience points, similar to like in D and D. Uh, each level has a fixed predetermined number of XP required to reach it. Every monster has a fixed predetermined number of XP it awards for defeat. Or fail forward. These systems reward you when you fail a roll. You get one XP every time you fail. And every five XP you level up. That's a really interesting idea I hadn't heard before. It is similar to the Forged in the Dark thing of you gain XP in a stat if you make a desperate action. Uh, you immediately gain XP in the in the relevant uh, track, depending on the action you did. Um, so something to keep in mind. I've been meaning to highlight that more when we play Teeth. Um, but uh, I was also going to say, you list those three things, Milestone, uh, XP, or Fail Forward. None of the above oh. came up with my own thing. Very My intriguing. It doesn't even really have proper progression, but whatever. Uh, and then the it's last different type of game. The last thing I'll say, since we're like we're basically at the end of the document, I mentioned the uh, there's the plug and play sheet that just sort of gives you the basics. There are a few links to different Caltrop core directories that list games people have built using this. There is the probability sheet. 
but uh, sort of the closing thoughts are at the end of this demo build, which is after you level up, you can decide what a character receives. Plus one HP, a new ability, plus one to a stat. That's enough to start playing. And as always, create more abilities and mechanics along the way. Is this game good? Probably not, but it's enough of a finished game to play, and that's how you get started. The only way to do it is to do it. And I really like this little positive, affirming message at the end, because it is not anything to do with RPGs. It's just, it's just a nice little positive message to the reader. I know there's a fear of making a bad thing, but what if your game was bad? What happens then? Not much. And I know neurodivergence can make things harder but try to give yourself some grace. No berating today, just let yourself be. You're doing as much as you can right now. Even if you could do more, would it be healthy? Just a nice little affirmation there saying like, hey, don't stress out. Use this to have some fun. Make a game. If it's not perfect, that's fine. You can refine it. You can start over. But whatever you do, definitely don't be hard on yourself when designing a game using Caltrop Core. Uh... And I think, Tom, this is where I hand it over to you so we can hear about what you've been working on. Well, so uh, let, let's go back to the beginning. What's, uh, what's the questions? What's the basic rundown? All right, so genre. Genre? Uh, sci-fi, question mark? Sci-fi, in brackets, maybe. In brackets, I have speculative xenobiology. Yeah, I was going to say, like, between them. It seems like it could incorporate, like, some dark fantasy or, or even Lovecraftian elements, oh, too. Oh, it, de- it depends which game we're talking about. Uh, maybe maybe oh. uh, you should be rethinking. Cer- ceremony, ceremony in Shadow? No. Oh, what game are we talking about, Tom? I thought that's the one well, you were talking about. It, may, it might be... You might call it sci-fi. Dangus, you you've done it. You might call it speculative sci-fi. I you think I know call, the one you mean. You might even call it xenobiology. I think I know the one you mean, but Dangus, Tom, you've done it again. <laughs> you, you, you pulled your Essence 20 G.I. Joe RPG where you were like, I didn't just make a character. I made three characters. So here Dude, I, I am. Made, I'm making three games now. I know. Because exactly. I had my original game, which is this one I'm talking about. That's like, I feel. You this know, is Orbserver we're talking about? Yeah, this yeah. is Orbserver. This is the one that I like sort of care. It's like the most personal for me. It's like when it asks in that document about like, what does this say about your values and everything? This is like the game I would make to make a statement on that. Um but yeah, uh, but but then also I have sort of a more generic game that like, you know, there are plenty of games like it uh, in existence, I think. So uh, it's not like, you know, it doesn't need to exist, but it's like a game that I can sort of cut my teeth on before working on the other games like a, or Observer or a game that. It's not as close to my heart as Observer is, but it's still pretty close and is also, uh, I think, just like a phenomenally uh, marketable game. Uh, good pitch is uh, working title is Going Commando. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it right. is a <laughs> horny military sim RPG. <laughs> man, oh, man, Tom. Okay, well, I see, here's the thing. I had assumed that we were talking about Ceremony and Shadow because I haven't looked at the Observer document yet. I, have looked I mean, at... I haven't shared it. Exactly. Observer that's, is... That's like... what I mean. 
So Ceremony how... and Shadow is in progress, but I have stuff, you know, to show off at this point. There's enough there to, like, send it around and get feedback. So I knew um, you were working on multiple games, but how could I have guessed that more than one of them would be the combined stat-driven slash token-based game? That's the thing that All of off. them are. It's, the... it's my system. <sighs> I'm, I'm doing it across all of them, and Ceremony and Shadow is just my, like, first run at it. You know, because Caltrop Core says that it like like it makes the distinction between stat driven and token based games, uh, I almost feel like like your game isn't quite Caltrop Core. It's another thing. It's like Lando Core or whatever. It's the Lando system. Caltrop. I I thought of this actually. It's Caltrop More. Caltrop More. My God. Uh, this all is right. good because if if. Somehow, I really doubt it from what I've seen of uh, their Twitter and whatnot, but if somehow Titanomachy gets canceled or some such, then I can just cut ties and I can do uh, Caltrop more. <laughs> <laughs> wow, but, uh, okay, yeah, so... Uh, so again, in, really in case... doubt that's going to ha- happen. They don't seem like a wrong-headed individual, quite the opposite. In case uh, of uh, milkshake ducking, we've got yeah, Caltrop more. In case of milkshake duck break glass. Oh. So I had no idea that all three of your games were using the same uh, combined stat token system that you showed me in Ceremony and Shadow, which is why I assumed that's where we were starting. But And what but is no. remarkable about it is that all three games, like the way in which the combined stat token system would work came to me almost immediately. Like, it was like, oh, obviously this is how th- that would work. Um, it's funny because I think the, mo- the the sort of weirdest take on it, I mean, definitely the weirdest take on this in every way is Orbserver. Orbserver is like, of these, the like, even though Ceremony and Shadow is kind of a, a game that can already, like, you could already make Ceremony and Shadow as a World of Darkness campaign or something like that. But um, even though that is the case, I still think that Ceremony and Shadow is technically more marketable than Orbserver just because Orbserver is so weird. But that is the whole point is like it is a game that, you know, the, the thing that I am trying to express, the value that I am trying to express with Orbserver is like, what if like what if you aren't playing like not not just like you know you can you can play an alien in all sorts of sci-fi games but this is more about like not being human this is about like removing the normal emotional drives and stuff that you have as a character and instead positioning yourself as this weird um like almost a a, a device of of a of a of a larger power it's uh it's hard to explain even um but but we'll get into it i reckon sorry so we'd only covered the genre so far right yeah i, I got confused because ceremony and shadow is dark sci-fi or dark uh, fantasy rather yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't say i would say that ceremony and shadow is a cult or supernatural horror yeah that's what i was trying to like some lovecraftian elements possible in there but uh definitely but yes genre or observer is sci-fi 
yeah, potentially speculative or xenobiology. Because I was the... looking at Wikipedia pages about genres and subgenres of sci-fi. What is the tone? Spooky. Spooky. And what are the goals of the players, if any? To survey reality. All right. And then uh, the rest is the two columns, uh, questions for stat-driven and questions for token-based games. Which do you want first? Uh, Let's do stats first, because I got stats listed first. All right. What are the stats? Probe, survey, and interface. Neat. <laughs> Those are just so different. That's that's really interesting. Probe, survey, and it, they they almost sound okay, more like you know skills. You know what's wild is that like the th- like it's three stats in all these games, and across these games, like Orbserver is the only one that kind of differs in how it interprets the the sort of uh what those stats represent but the sort of model that i've created for this system is that one stat represents impact one stat represents interact and one stat represents react and uh the way i define these is generally um impact is like your power stat you use that stat you roll that stat when you are trying to affect something in a way that does not take into account the response of the subject. So, for example, if you just, like, punch somebody and you're not, like, ducking and weaving or boxing with them or anything, that's that's impact. You're just straight up slugging somebody. Um, or if you're just, like, trying to bust down a door or push a boulder. That's all impact because the the boulder is not going to argue with you. It's just you push the boulder. Uh, Interact is where you are trying to get a result from a subject, but there is back and forth with the subject. The obvious example is like if you're having an argument with someone and you're trying to get them to understand a certain idea um but also like operating a complex system like a machine or a computer is interact um because you need to know you need to be able to predict the sort of uh back and forth of like you put in a prompt it responds you put in another prompt um going back to impact actually another one that's less obvious is if you were trying to like stun someone with your sheer beauty that would be impact uh, because, again, like the person is not going to argue with how attractive you are. Um, they are either either you are going to have the effect or not. Um, react, finally, is the stat that covers any role that only concerns your character. So that could be overcoming a debilitating condition or it could be trying to make out details of something through the dark and those are your three stats what's funny is that so so in orbserver they don't necessarily line up the same the the same way theoretically you could say that probe is impact interface is interact and survey is react but they don't line up as neatly um ceremony and shadow uh 
impact is brutality which I also really love because that means that in Ceremony and Shadow, if you try to like affect someone with your sheer your sheer beauty, it's it was an act of brutality. <laughs> oh my god, they 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 were so hot it was it was brutal. <laughs> it's too much. It was an assault on my senses. But it's like perfect for the tone of this game where just like everything is bad. Um aptitude is the interact skill for that one and faith is the react skill as being the like thing that you draw on in yourself but mcgill my horny military sim going commando (laughs) the abilities are thrust groove and feel oh and those didn't make it into that game come on no, it's thrust. Thrust for impact, <laughs> groove for interact, and feel for react. And so for all three games, you now know the stats. So uh, will the game use a class system, a pick list, or a combination? Uh, like, yes, a, a, a class system... Um, in that there are, uh, well, sorry, what is the pick list? Does it explain? Let me see I here. Must. Uh, yeah. Um, where's that? Classes aren't the only way of doing things. You can develop a pick list of abilities that a character can choose to build out their custom kit. Yeah, I feel so rather like... than so rather than just having classes that come with abilities, they're talking about just giving like a pool of abilities for people to choose from that you don't have to tie to a specific class. So my compromise here was that I do not have the ability points like like your probe survey and interface. You get point by on that. Like you get a certain number of points to distribute on those stats. Um, that is not tied to your class, but then there is also a class choice that gives you either a special ability uh, or special abilities, um, but also, in the case of Orbserver or Ceremony and Shadow, also gives you a flaw. Um, so, so I guess to explain, like, Orbserver, I think you get uh yeah you the class is your design and you get a design flaw and a design feature or or options uh to choose from ceremony and shadow you choose your type which is either uh knower watcher or maker and though each one has a specific ability they get access to um but also a flaw that is unique to them um and then uh like going commando is meant to be sort of the more maximalist of these systems where my plan is for each like there's like uh i think nine classes or or let me see Yeah, uh, nine classes uh, and also like a tenth sort of custom class. And each one is supposed to have three special abilities. Um, so that one is like, uh, and, and not none of them have flaws. So that one is a much more like sort of, uh, you know, 
like I say, maximalist kind of RPG. It's all about giving the players lots of options and not drawback, not drawbacks. Because the horny military sim. <laughs> just, just what we were all missing. Um, what's the core gameplay loop of each of these? So okay, man. And so, I guess, so, and you so, know what? It might we might as well combine the two because the next question is, and then what does the loop say about your values? So they kind of go together. Yeah, and and we to really get into the details of that, we got to get into the tokens part. But I can say generally what it's all about is uh, so observers. The idea is that like the void, the abyss. The, the, the abyss that you shouldn't gaze into too long lest it gaze back, it is gazing back. Not necessarily at you, though. It's just like the void exists and then reality exists. And the void just is looking back at reality like, what the fuck? What the fuck? And so eventually the void is like, we got we to gotta figure out what the fuck's going on here. And so the Void designs these vessels to serve as kind of agents that are going to be the Void's eyes on the other side within what we know as, like, defined reality. Tom, can I just cut in to ask you, like, is that the the tagline for the game? Because if not, it really should be, which is if you gaze into the Void, the Void gazes back and it has questions, or the Void gazes back in confusion. <laughs> That's definitely a, a, a part of the themes. I've definitely got something in my notes here that says something about that. Um, but, yeah, it says here, I want to... Uh, one of my notes is, I want to play around a lot with the theme of the Abyss gazes back, or whatever. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, so so the void puts out these these agents to be its eyes and that's what the players are and those are observers and so observers are these uh, again like they're they come from the same sort of design that i had for like the demi liches of the nightside eclipse like there's a lot of nightside eclipse design that is crossed over into the idea of the observer but basically it's a spherical Carbon's fi- carbon fiber sphere, uh, it's like porous, and the pores act simultaneously as audiovisual receptors and projectors, so they can hear and see as well as projecting sound and light. Um, but they also provide a means of deploying a filament cable tentacle from any point on its body, which it can use to navigate, interact, and even defend itself if necessary. So basically, they can see, hear, project images and sound, and deploy appendages as they see fit. Um, And yeah, so in terms of the game loop, the idea is that uh, the observers have been sent to just, like, gather intel on reality uh, and bring back their findings but there's also like a a large part of it is like doing that without getting caught but also really important is doing that without becoming too attached to the reality that you're observing there is a concept of like obsession whereby uh, an orb uh, observers have been known 
to become way too fixated on something that they discover in reality and then they like won't return to the void and uh like add their knowledge to the to the data banks or whatever and so then observers need to be sent out to like retrieve that like rogue observer and i guess man what what does this say about my values um i think (laughs) i'll let you take it tom and uh i'll put my freud textbook away i mean uh you well i mean you can hit me with whatever psychoanalysis you you have in mind but i just think that like i think it's something about like uh like like one part of it for me is like i think we talked about this when i mentioned observer before is like there's this idea that you could have i i i think i want to say in the game like as a gm you can decide whether or not the observers are just like the forward scouts for what is going to be an invasion of reality and like you know escalate up to that but in my mind there is much more of a a a kind of non-violence to the observers where it's like you really are just here to learn you're just here to figure out what's going on and to like gather data on stuff and the conflict of it comes from like the fact that you cannot truly hold on to this data um but also the fact that like you are a freaky extra dimensional orb thing that people are probably going to freak out if they see and it is like bad for the void if people start fixating on what it is or what is coming from it there's a lot of also like it's kind of a weird uh like crossover of like my interest in like uh like like occult stuff like my interest in the occult but also uh my interest in this very specific weird kind of sci-fi design uh, which is where the xenobiology comes in is like it's very much like a designed almost like it's almost not really an organism but it's a designed thing uh which that is sort of the sci-fi element but the place that it comes from and the kind of philosophy behind it is very much rooted in uh all the stuff that i know about the occult the blood of kingu and all all this crazy stuff about like what existed before the world and and chaos and all that it's like uh what if what if uh that stuff like like we i think what it is you know if i was to summarize the thing i'm trying to express with my values here it's that people always think of the void or the abyss or the roiling chaos before creation as this like terrible scary thing and i just am taking that kind of monster bed view of like well what do they think us we probably look pretty fucking weird to them you know um do you know the the monster bed 
The monster bed? Not death bed, yeah. the bed that eats. No, uh, the monster bed is like a children's story that I loved as a child. Um, oh, man, this is going to explain so much, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, the main character, the monster Dennis, believes that human children are under his bed and will get him as he falls asleep. His mother, however, tries to get him to go to sleep. Eventually, a human child accidentally ventures into their home cave. And both the human and Dennis discover each other, frightening both. Um, but when she bent down to kiss Dennis, he chose to fasten his fangs round her warty old nose. He tied up his man. toes in a knot round her knees. Let go of me, deaded. You're hurting me, please. Only, but he the... said, if you help with my plan. All right, squealed his mummy. I will if I can. But the best is... Um... It's the intro. It's never go down to the withering woods. The creatures that live there are up to no good. There's gnomes that are nasty and trolls that are hairy, and even the pixies and fairies are scary. That's awesome. <laughs> this it really does explain an awful lot, Tom. <laughs> That's like your yeah. aesthetic right there. It even it even like came with a little like plush version of Dennis that Aww. had a little pillow. And I had that. Oh, man. Love that guy. This book is super cute. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, and uh, what about what about the other games? Man. What's uh, the gameplay okay. loop? <laughs> What's the gameplay loop in Going Commando? And what does it say about you? Okay, man. Actually, I have good answers for this. So <laughs> I have... There, there is like a core... Um, like uh, what what i you know how you do like examples of play in your rpg book i have an example of what i imagine uh playing going commando would look like um and it's like a very strong uh guiding point for like the loop of the game i think uh it's i come out of i come up out of cover and open fire on the convoy your glistening, oiled body rises from the bushes, momentarily blinding the drivers and guards. When you unload, vehicles careen off the road as their drivers are reduced to twitching ecstasy by your aura of martial and sexual prowess. No <laughs> confirmed kills, but countless confirmed orgasms. I want this to be like a an RPG that is like fully like a, a Jagged Alliance or, or like, you know, Escape from Tarkov type military sim but then as soon as like the combat happens no one's getting shot or dying everybody is just like jizzing their pants um and it's all just like a bombastic display of like sexual energy and and really the key and what what is core to the values here is the idea of sexual expression is the idea of like you know um kind of giving back the sense of like like, like giving a sense of uh if not respect then at least just like some kind of like empathy or understanding with like like you know uh adult performers and whatnot and the fact that like there is a, a value to that sexual expression even though it's like like people 
demonize it a lot because it's completely fucking absurd and it's like people often say the very obvious thing of like you're not like that's not what sex is actually supposed to be like and it's like well no but it's like like there is value to a, like that level of sexual expression where it's like this may not be what sex is like but it is a sexual idea that i am going to actualize um like that's what that's what sexual expression is and i think that like acknowledging that and then making it into a fun thing that people can enjoy even if they aren't like particularly horny it can be more of like sort of a, a raunchy fun exercise that has all the basics of like a military sim where you just you know it's it's and like a lot of it is like fertile ground for commentary like it it plays right into like gun porn and 80s action homoeroticism <laughs> gun and porn like, and regular porn yeah and and it, i was literally just about to say also like a comparison of the military industrial complex and the porn industrial complex oh my god like, tom i mean you were brainstorming names for this but you know gun porn is pretty good right i mean yeah but it's it's not all about that like I, especially because when the combat happens i want to take the emphasis like like i want the guns to be a statistical thing but i don't want it to be the focus of the narrative i guess maybe that's like, just the the name of the chapter where you cover weapons and equipment <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which would would which will be like I say, like maximized, like similar to the GI Joe gear thing. It's like I want it to have so many options and just like really blow up the scale to the point where it's like you know you're having your very specific decked out modified gun uh, that you like take on the bad guys with. But then as soon as you roll. If it's a success, it's like, oh man, they're all so horny because of your crazy gun skills. You hold your, you fire from the hip, and your gun is like a protruding <laughs> erection, and everybody's just like, oh my god! And all these guards, they've actually, they've just been like sitting around jerking off, looking at their phones. They don't even, they, they've been like waiting for this to happen, and it's just they play right into your assault. Actually, that's uh, there's certain words that I'm gonna be trying to avoid, and like explicitly in the text and like so one of them is going to be like we're going to try not to say assault when we play this game right because it's just there's there's a difference between like literal meaning and connotation and you got to respect that connotation and uh, did we cover ceremony in shadow so ceremony in shadow um Again, Ceremony and Shadow is the one that I consider to be most like, like it, it's a game that, that, like it, I don't need to make Ceremony and Shadow to play Ceremony and Shadow because I could make, I could run like a World of Darkness or a Call of Cthulhu thing of Ceremony and Shadow, and so I don't know that there's a ton that separates it. It does feel yeah, sort of like the sandbox that you're playing around in to refine the ideas in the other games. Yeah, the thing I've been saying is that like it it's the the game that I'm like cutting my teeth on before getting into these mm -hmm. games that like Orbserver, like I say, is was something that's kind of like personal to me. And uh 
a labor of love, I guess you could say. And then um, going commando is like one that I really want to go in depth on and really build out the systems for. And so like the happy, like, like sort of the happy middle ground where I'm not overburdening myself with like work to do. Um, but it's still like this system I found like works really well for it. Uh, like, I don't know. The, the thing is, I think there's a, a lot of similarity between what I understand the core game loop of like Call of Cthulhu to be and the core game loop as I imagine it for Ceremony and Shadow. But basically, Ceremony and Shadow is like the characters are like aspiring occultists that are in this like apocalyptic world seeking they've like gone out in search of occult lore and power to give them some sort of fighting chance in this like doomscape they find themselves in but as much as the occult uh the occult materials that they discover can empower them um they have to temper that against the like growing corruption that the like dabbling in the occult exposes them to um so yeah it's it's uh a game about desperately uh turning to occult lore for answers in a time of utter damnation and uh trying to use that to survive without losing your mind or soul so let's talk about tokens yeah a critical part of each of these games Do you, is there a first question you should be hitting me with there is uh and but before we even start because i know you're probably going to start with like observer but uh, I have only seen the document you've been putting together for Ceremony and Shadow. And even in that, I thought your use of the token mechanic was really cool. It added a really unique spin to, you know, an average RPG. Why don't more games have tokens, man? So um, what area of gameplay do tokens help resolve? So uh, the main thing across all these games is that um i mentioned that there isn't like a real like you don't have progression in these games in the same way that you would in other rpgs um instead you have the tokens uh right sorry to explain better like so Say I make a character in one of these games and one of my stats, like I, I make my character and my stats come out uh, one in one of the stats and two in the other two. Those stats are never going to change. That is my character until that character is retired or, or eliminated or whatever. The way that I improve my roles since i cannot since there's no progression by which i raise my stats is i spend the tokens i've collected and each token i spend 
adds another dice to my pool. So I can never raise that one stat above one. And so anytime I'm rolling that stat, I'm rolling one die. But if I collect the tokens, I can then spend those tokens to add die. And then I can be rolling three die and have a much higher chance of success on that roll. Um, in each game, however, I have... Well, I guess... Uh, sorry, are there more questions about this? Maybe we should go through the questions before I start digging further into it. All right. Um, how do characters acquire tokens? What can a character expend tokens to do? And then uh, similar to the other ones, like what does this type of exchange say about your values? Okay, so so I just sort of covered some of yeah, that Yeah, just explain all the token mechanics. But the thing is that in each one of these games... The token, the gain of tokens is simultaneously, it's like, good, I have a token, now I can use that to improve my rules, and that could be critical in if I need to succeed in something. But there is always another stat that starts at zero, but which you are tracking and goes up every time you gain a token, and that has a limit that you are trying not to exceed. So... In Orbserver, the Void dispatches you and your fellow Orbservers to gather intel on a certain topic, perhaps, maybe not even a certain topic, maybe just generally to gain intel uh, in a certain place. They send you there, but when you are sent out, you are the GM sets a limit, and that limit uh, for... Observers, I think it would probably be like obsession or something uh, would be what it was called. But basically, every time an observer gets a token, it's like, great, you learned something. You like gained a critical piece of intel about this world. You learned something that was unknown to you and the void before. But if you pick up too many of those the void is going to get the impression that you have become too attached to this reality and view you as one of those ones that needs to be forcefully recalled. In Ceremony and Shadow, the stat that tracks your token gains is corruption. And so each token you gain, you gain tokens when you uh, discover like a cache of, of occult knowledge and the occult the the token is called an occult token and it represents the occult knowledge and power that you have gained from that and you can now spend that to improve your roles but every time you gain one of those tokens your corruption goes up and just like observer the gm sets at the beginning of the of the adventure or the the chapter or whatever uh, a limit and if you exceed that limit of corruption, then you are like, you become like overtaken by this abyssal corruption and become like more monster than man, basically. You, you, it's the classic thing of like in, in World of Darkness, if you're a vampire and you lose all your humanity, you become just like a raging monster. And then you just give your sheet over to the GM so they can use it as like a monstrous villain. Um, 
so there's the same idea there in Ceremony and Shadow where it's like if you are too reckless and you're like you you want to accumulate token occult tokens but if you're too reckless in accumulating those you will exceed your corruption limit and become like a liability to your to your party then i think you're going to like this one uh going commando so all of these stats i should also say or, or all of these games i should also say have a basic sort of like endurance stat that's basically like your your hp um but i don't i didn't want it to be i like the th uh, we've mentioned this but i like the thing in the gi joe rpg how you you don't kill enemies you defeat them um and so i wanted to keep that sort of thing of like I don't want to necessarily be measuring damage. I want to in I want to be measuring how much a character can take before they can't go any further. And so that shouldn't just be damage, that should also be like exhaustion and things like that, stress. And so for observers it is uh like a literal physical thing of damage where you have a structure and structure is like your health if you take too much damage to structure you like cease to function and then it's a problem because the observers need to retrieve you so that you don't get autopsied at area 51 or something um in ceremony and shadow you have resilience and, uh, you know, you uh, while you are trying not to exceed your limit of corruption, um, you're also not trying to not reach zero resilience, uh, which is uh, caused by harm dealt by threats. Um, I remember the thing that I blanked on earlier is one thing that I've also kept as like a thing that the GM... I leave it to the GM to, to decide because I think it could be kind of cool either way is you can choose whether or not you let the players know what the limit is when you set it at the start of the game. You could have a much more tense game of ceremony and shadow. If the players know that they have a limit to how much corruption they can take on, but don't know what that limit is. Because then they're like constantly afraid that the next like tome that they unearth is gonna drive them insane or something. Um, but with uh, going commando, your like endurance stat is stamina, and you gain heat tokens, which you spend to improve your rolls. But every time you gain a heat token, it increases your arousal level. And you're trying to keep your arousal level below your stamina. Your arousal level must not exceed your stamina. Um, but also, I mean, uh, in that game, I can have the the penalty for exceeding your stamina, your arousal exceeding your stamina be way less punishing like it doesn't have to be like your character goes insane or dies or anything it's just like oh well your character uh he, he climaxes early and he, he they, they climax early and they're just gonna have to be out for a few <laughs> rounds and like maybe another character maybe certain classes have a special ability to like help them get, get back in faster shorter refractory period <laughs> yeah exactly post-coitled damn that's pretty funny tom 
Uh, do you have anything to say about your values in relation to these things? I th I think that like my values were covered in the first part. Right. Like, my value like I don't think there's any difference between the values I'm expressing with the stats and the values I'm expressing with the tokens. It's all part of the same game loop. Um, but I think now you have like the whole view of it, where it's like, uh, this is how the stats and the tokens combine, and the manner in which the tokens are like, like they're. There's no, uh, there's always a reason not to just endlessly hoard, to collect and hoard tokens, right? Right. So it sounds like, well, I don't know. You're just going to keep developing all three of these games, aren't you? Uh, yeah, that's the plan. I'm hoping to be done with, uh, Ceremony and Shadow, like, hopefully soon uh because i'm i'm pretty close to like finishing up most of what i like so i have a few things to add to it like examples for the threats that i've included and like some examples of like you know uh how a, how a game or a session would be laid out um and then beyond that i want to do just like a ton of play examples that just explain how different mechanics work just to like help clarify things um and then once i'm satisfied with that then i'll move on to observer and going commando using uh ceremony and shadow as a kind of you know uh measuring stick or, or as a template um they already kind of share a template all of them so you know just uh once i have ceremony and shadow at like what i would be satisfied with as like a finished product um then i'll start to like base that model or, or, or uh base the other games off that model and uh yeah i don't know find somebody who uh has mastery over indesign and and get some art and uh, put those things up on Ichio, probably. And it sounds like the bottom line here is definitely that Caltrop Core is a great source of inspiration. Gives you enough of a framework to build an RPG off of, but as Tom has demonstrated, you can make three very different RPGs just based around these same ideas. And yet all with the same core system. Mm-hmm. Caltrop more. Caltrop more. But yes, listeners, caltropcore.com. You should check it out. So I think we actually have time to go into my side of things now. Yeah, right? we should do it. There was something else I wanted to say about that, but, um, you know, whatever. We'll definitely be coming back to it, I'm sure. Um. Okay, man. So uh, we are on operation worm aroboros which is the first operation of act five worm aroboros it's worm aroboros uh this one is uh based on ddex 310 quelling the horde um but before we really get into the operation i just want to jump back into talking about something i i mentioned last time uh 
is um, in with the onset of this new act, Act 5, Wormoroboros, there was the introduction of the new model of Orion anti-material rifle, which was that uh, sniper rifle I mentioned that like never went into proper production as far as I can tell. Um, but also, I think I mentioned this, is Al-Samasath, uh, who had been... Uh, Previously, he had really helped out the party by perfecting improved health potion formulas that uh, improved, like basically made it so that you always got the maximum result from MPOC health potions. Alsamasath had done that, but he's been working on, on other things since. And his research has reached a point where he now entrusts, or, or he now offers to the party that they field test his stim packs. And the way these work, uh, I had basic stim packs and then I also had super stim packs, uh, classic fallout shout there. But stim packs um, function uh, kind of similar to health, like they're very similar to health potions. They're also better in that like you you can just like shoot someone up with them, right? So you don't have to have the same problem of like if somebody's unconscious, like having to feed them the health potion or anything. Like, so in that way, stim packs are more efficient. But also, where health potions, um, like the they have a, a set amount of health that they can restore, uh, that is, is not affected by how much health you may have capacity for stim packs heal you for 50% of your total health. Um, super stim packs heal you for 100% of your total health. However, uh, it takes like a full action to uh, use them because you have to basically like strap it onto the person and like hook it up before administering it. And then also uh, every time within 20 like every time before a long rest that you take a super stim pack like every consecutive super stim pack uh that you take before a long rest um adds like exponential exhaustion to your character so it's like if you uh oh right sorry the thing is that also like that exhaustion sets in after a certain point, no matter what. So you do a super stim pack to get like, uh, you know, a hundred percent, like get all your health back. But then once it wears off, you gain a point of exhaustion. Then if before long resting, you use another super stim pack that will then raise your health to 100%, but after that wears off, you will have an additional two exhaustion on top of the one you already have, which brings you to three exhaustion. And this basically means that you can like rapidly escalate to a super stim pack overdose because six exhaustion kills your character. Um, so with all that established... It should also be said, it's a tricky thing because Alsamathath introduced these great healing items, these stim packs. But now we know with the benefit of hindsight 
that Al Samasath was a, a minister. He had a ministry parasite right. in him. And now everyone in the impact is MPOC is just like a little bit more like they're pretty hesitant to use any of this like experimental technology that Al Samasath pitched in the time when he is now it's now known that he was like hosting this parasite. So it's like now it's like, well, do you trust Al Samasath under the influence of the ministry enough to like still depend on these stim packs? Do you go back to the old health potion? Um, so for this act, Act Five, Wormeroboros, the PCs began based out of Omega Base, the forward military base from which the Draelic invasion of the Deathlands was originally launched. Do you remember Omega Base? No. No, I don't remember o Omega Base. Tell you one thing about Omega Base is when it was under construction was when uh, uh, Serpentine tried to, like, turn on the MPOC, went rogue, and uh, sabotaged the construction of the base. That was something that happened. Ah. Uh, the party was, from that base, the party was sent to Agaloc, this big mysterious spooky forest that i've mentioned uh is the main focus of this act they're checking it out it's the last part of the deathlands that's not accounted for they don't know if it's nightside eclipse controlled or not they just know it's a spooky mysterious forest and they gotta scout it out um and on the way to agalock they're to meet with members of a spy network that's already in place around the forest these fellow MPOC agents, uh, Arthur, Kalkin, and Wenton. So Arthur is the human from the uh, detective duo of uh, Arthur and Tusk that featured in that spinoff oh, yeah. uh, game that I did with the detectives who joined the uh, MPOC and Sto Stormgate. That I remember. So that's Arthur. Kalkin is the uh, Dwarven guard captain who uh, accused Al's aces of assassinating Ambassador Garlunder when he had, in fact, been assassinated by Nightside Eclipse assassins. And uh, Kalkin hounded them all over uh, the Dwarven capital of Arten. But uh, in the end, uh, when their innocence was proven, Kalkin uh, sort of as penance joined the MPOC as an agent uh, to make up for all the hassle he'd caused them. And then Wenton, of course, is uh, the MPOC's resident apothecary from the very beginning, the guy who's sold them potions ever since uh, MPOC's finest. So these are the three uh, spies that are already in place uh, monitoring Agalock. The players are to meet with them on the way. Uh, at a frowning jester inn, about 10 hours on foot from the forest, but with the party in their vehicles, like uh, Gent has their motorbike and everything, uh, it's more like three hours for the party. Upon arrival at the uh, frowning jester inn, the party could tell that emplacements were under construction around the forest to help define the border. Arthur gave the party the locations of three ruins scouted around Agalock, and Kalkin, secretly host to a ministry parasite as well, 
informed them of their primary mission, which was to deal with reports of night goblin attacks in the area. Do you remember what a night goblin is? The definition of a night goblin in this in this game. It's on the tip of my brain, but no, I'm drawing a blank. So in the death so there's goblins throughout Drail, but in the Deathlands there's a distinction between goblins that are still loyal to the Nightside Eclipse, as if the Nightside Eclipse was still in power, and then there's goblins that have like they they're happy that the Nightside Eclipse is gone. It doesn't mean nothing to them. They aren't Nightside Eclipse cultists. The ones that maintain loyalty the loyalty to the Nightside Eclipse are night goblins. The ones that do not are dust goblins. So dust goblins good, night goblins bad. Really, if not, if goblins are attacking anyone in the area, they're probably night goblins. Sorry, you were going to say something? I remember the dust goblins. That I remember. Yeah. Uh, Wenton then offered a secondary objective, requesting that the party secure a rust monster specimen from within the forest. The source of nourishment for these creatures, apparently sighted in the forest, was a mystery. What, what are the rust monsters going to eat in a big old forest? Ain't nothing but wood. Not a good place for a rust monster. I was, uh, uh, ironwood. Ironwood. Iron oak. No. Um, no. Is that a real thing? I thought, I think there's like ironwood in like Game of Thrones in that Telltale Game of Thrones thing. I was just, I was desperate for, for some wood and metal pun that I could throw in there. Uh, so investigating the ruins indicated by Arthur on their map, the party discovered signs of a violent struggle with clues pointing to six prisoners being taken and monstrous mounts being used in the area, along with the corpses of numerous humans, goblins, and horses. Another site was determined to be a nut farm in the forest, though humans and goblins had also been massacred there. They also discovered signs of some clandestine rituals being conducted in the area, including an encounter with hostile animated scarecrows. Not only did the party find the same monstrous tracks near the nut farm, but they also discovered a traumatized young goblin that was hiding among some goats. The party headed back to, for the inn with the goblin and discovered that in their absence, a garage had been like the construction of a garage had been completed. So, uh, checking in with this garage, Kalkin, uh, gifted the party a Jeep and also gave Connor a plus two vicious club. Nice magic club that does extra damage on a crit. Even more extra damage than it normally does on a crit. Uh, having delivered the, uh, goblin child to safety, they returned to the forest the party followed the trail of the monstrous mounts to a cavern entrance. A long passage led to the network of caverns, the length of which was patrolled by three goblins mounted on two-headed dogs. Death dogs. Do you know death dogs? They're two-headed dog monsters in Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, I've used them before. So the, they find this long passage leading to this deep network of caverns under the forest or within the forest, uh, but the the long passage is patrolled by goblins mounted on on death dogs. And a lot of this is just straight up 
from uh, quelling the horde, the uh, the the module that it's from. Um, heading deeper into the caves, the party discovered a wooden pen in which were kept three captive rust monsters. Gent named these ketchup, relish, and mustard would eventually deliver them to Wen's care to satisfy that secondary objective. Beyond the pens, the party discovered uh, four goblins attempting to wrangle a giant toad with two of the goblins mounted atop the creature. He uh, took out those goblins and the giant toad, and then uh, there was a position overlooking this area which presented an opportunity to climb up to that observation point. Uh, but luckily the PCs were careful enough to realize that the climb, the, the climb had been trapped with poisonous barbs. So instead of climbing, they opted to instead navigate the labyrinthine tunnel network in which the party found themselves in amongst a settlement of hostile goblins. There are a few uh, scenes I want to zoom in on here, though this was generally like they're in the like goblin warrens, as it were. Behind enemy lines. Um, the feast that wasn't. They discover a would-be mess hall where three giant boars are trampling the remains of three goblins across a floor stained with blood and beer. Hey, let's uh, cook up these boars. Uh-oh, these are big boars. That didn't work so well for them. <laughs> uh, drowned goblin. Uh, a goblin skeleton can be found in a pool at the bottom of which sit two healing potions and rusty watertight steel flasks. Ah, dang, they were too too deep. I tried to swim down there. Couldn't make it. Drowned. Became a skeleton. I suspect foul play, says the goblin ghost. There was no ghost. There could have been, though. The party also discovered a collapsed tunnel to the Underdark. Small creatures, such as the goblins, might have been able to squeeze through, but it wasn't anywhere the party could follow. Eventually... The party discovered the prisoners, several of them human nut farmers. Of ten cages, eight contained captives, two of which had gone mad from their time in captivity. These prisoners had been left in the care of an incubus and its loyal pet, Dretch. Fiends apparently given leave to lord over the goblins' captives. The incubus was the first to feature a rare but cool use of the 5e madness mechanics. I've talked about how these madness mechanics that appear throughout these uh, DDEX3 Season 3 are kind of lackluster, uh, except that there are these occasional moments where they flesh them out a bit more in a really cool way. So failure to save against this Incubus's kiss uh, action leads to the victim gaining madness, but this madness is flavored specifically as being tied to the sudden stench of burning flesh entering the nostrils of the character. So either they're hallucinating or they are, like, horrified by that sudden onset of stench. And uh, luckily, none of the PCs found themselves in such a desperate predicament because in order to be kissed by an incubus or a succubus you have to already be charmed so you have to be in a bad place to even get into that situation after dispatching the fiends the prisoners uh warned the party of the goblin's leader a demonic goblin named gore 
the party promised to return for the prisoners after dealing with Gore and proceeded on in search of him. In a primitive forge deeper in the tunnels, the party fought two goblins supported by a hammer horror, a helmed horror with hammers for hands. Nice. <laughs> Again, this is all just great stuff that is in this module. It's a great module about uh, dealing with some goblins that are led by a demonic goblin leader. Beyond the forge was Gore's lair, which the climb up to the observe uh, to the the climb up to the observation point would have led directly to. It's effectively Gore's balcony in the caves. However, Gore's lair, uh, before you get to Gore's lair, there's a trapped passage. The trap the passage is sort of like you can see into it from inside Gore's lair. Like they have a pretty good line of sight to anyone coming along the passage to enter into the lair. So anyone who enters the passage and triggers the trap inside, which is a scorching blast of fire, immediately gets the attention of anyone that's in the lair. And the party did trigger the trap. Um, they're, they're, they did manage to gain some treasure for their trouble. There were uh, they got a couple of of a couple of vials of alchemist fire, fifty five gold each, and uh, a plus two vicious great club adorned with silver spikes uh, that was like hidden behind the trap. But since they triggered the trap, it gave the remaining goblins and their leader the opportunity to pr prepare for the party's assault. So the party ended up heading into the lair and fighting four goblins along with gore mounted on a carrion crawler in a brutal combat where the goblins were laying in ambush on either side of the lair's entrance um gore kind of like goaded them out by like standing in the center of the lair or, or s like sitting on the back of the carrion crawler like taunting them to come at him uh in the center of the lair but then if they charged in after him they immediately got jumped by like four goblins that were like doing the classic like wait on either side of the door you know um but gore introduced another cool madness effect which was that gore's head is crowned with iron spikes and failing against his demonic charm effect increases madness while giving the victim the impression of having those same spikes driven into their skull Having defeated the goblins and their fiendish master, the party escorted the prisoners back to their farm, asking many questions and learning much about Agalok from the farmers. The farmers explained that the, most of the forest population lived in a great city deep within called The Mantle. The Mantle being a, a, an album by the band Agalok. Of course. The farmers had left the city some time ago to live a less urban life, but the party would soon learn the occupants of the mantle now had a reputation as slavers and human supremacists. Bad news in, in the mantle. The Egglocks run by bad folks. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of foreshadows how this act, the Empok and the Draelic army, are going to have to intervene in Egglock, whether the Nightside Eclipse is involved or not. There's going to have to be some injustices uh some wrongs righted some injustices addressed and that was uh operation worm oroboros oh yeah first of the new act 
Hell yeah. Pretty proud of the doodles I have included for this episode, too. Uh, I have great doodles coming up for the next episode that uh, basically are like my updated, like high level drawings of Hexakila, Gent, and Connor. Um, but also the doodles uh, for this one, I got a classic one. It's like a profile uh, view of the tunnel with the goblins on the death dogs. Uh, I got. Uh, draw a doodle of a giant toad that I'm really happy with. Yeah, I was with. just going to comment on the giant toad, and I really like your, your rust monster there as well. Yeah. And, uh, of course, this this Royal Highland immigrant guy looks fantastic. Yeah, I'm always... Uh, this was around a time that I was doing a lot of sketches of these uh, illustrations of... Uh, of... Uh... American Provincial Corps soldiers from the first Osprey Man at Arms book. But also, uh, right next to that giant toad, you also see uh, Buck, the 10-year-old goblin boy, who sadly was the yeah, only yeah, survivor of the massacre at uh, the massacre of his fellow goblins at the Nut Farm. I like his, uh, his private school schoolboy shorts with his collared shirt tucked in. Yeah, poor, poor Buck. Sent him back to Omega Base. Got him, got him adopted or something. I don't know. I don't quite know what happened to Buck. I, I guess they didn't keep track of him. They didn't keep keep in touch. <laughs> they just made sure that he was okay, which I guess is the important thing. It's similar to like, you know, the Rust monsters. Uh, like all Gent cared about is like you aren't gonna like dissect these things or anything, are you? And uh Wenton had to like embarrassed like, like kind of bashfully explain like no the the question is like what they've been eating in the forest so actually I'm gonna just have to like study stool samples and stuff like it's not it's kind of embarrassing actually <laughs> um so also worth saying that this is another one that I like uh brought over into shadow fun neo north i had uh instead of a network of tunnels i had a weapons facility in uh guelph uh that uh had been overtaken by techno crust uh, terrorists and uh the the uh shadow runners were uh tasked with uh resting control back uh resting control of the uh weapons facility from them and uh delivering it into the hands of behemoth who you remember is a character in that appeared in shadow fun neo north but yeah. also appeared as your employer in uh, our game of cyberpunk that's right um and uh, there was also, I, I forgot, um, there was some uh, some uh, rewards that they got for these missions. Uh, let me see. Got them somewhere. Uh, yeah, for scouting out the, for investigating the sites for Arthur, that, that Arthur told them about, they got an Iun Stone of Protection, which Gent is still using to this day. It's a, you know Iun Stones? 
Ayun stones, no. Okay, so Ayun, uh, man, Ayun is it Ayun the god of, yeah, uh, goddess of knowledge, prophecy, and skill, uh, opponent of Vecna. Uh, as an NPC, Ayun is played by Matt Mercer. Yeah, who fucking isn't? Um, point is, uh, yeah. Ayun is the unallied goddess of knowledge, prophecy, and skill, um, and is the patron of the study of magic and mental power. She's like a classic D and D goddess. Um, but Ayun stones are these uh, sort of relics uh, keyed to her. There are these magic stones that have like glyphs on them and have like different colors and and forms and shapes. Um, but once you attune to them, they just sort of float around your head. And while they orbit your head, they provide like a passive magical bonus to you. Um, there is a rule about like enemies can attempt to like snatch them out of the air or something. So that's a thing you can do. Uh, but the Ion, the Ion Stone of Protection is basically just like a ring of protection. It's like plus one to your AC. Kick ass. For Jet, brings their AC up. Get that Ayun stone. At this point, actually, in the campaign, uh, like where I'm at now, uh, like Jet has more than one Ayun stone orbiting their head. And uh, yeah, pretty badass. I like the sound of this module. Uh, you know, you already commented on the monsters in it, but uh, this is one that I'm going to have to look up and, and read the actual document. Uh, yeah, Quelling the Horde. I'm also just going to see... Oh, yeah, I mentioned Kalkin gave them the uh, the Jeep. So now they're going to be... It's, now it's going to be much easier for the party to get to and from Omega Base and Agalock. Like, Omega Base is quite far north of Agalock, so having, the, having vehicles to help cover that distance through the Deathlands to get to the forest... Uh, when they have missions there uh, is going to be a pretty critical uh, detail in this act. I also like uh, ketchup, mustard, and relish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. It's funny also, like... I was looking at today, we're getting ever closer to the point where I will actually have, like, the thing is, I think around this time, I had been, like, writing out, like, typing up my notes in Google Docs, but the thing is that when I was done with them, I would just delete them. Oh. <laughs> like, I didn't keep them, and it didn't occur to me, it, it literally didn't occur to me until I started reusing like a lot of the con like directly a lot of the content from my Empoch game in my Shadow Fun Neo North game that I'm like, man, I should really stop deleting all of this because I can just start copy pasting what I had written before and change the words and then it'll be less work to write out all the notes. Um but I didn't start keeping what was left of that in a uh used text document until a certain point deep into this act of uh, 
of Coyote's Aegis. And so once we get there, I'll be able to like literally read off like bits of narration the way you have in, in past accounts of uh, games. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, we're getting there. There's one thing that's always nice about like the fact that I've always had like such a long run of material to cover in this podcast is like we've always had this outlook toward like we're getting towards a, a, a new thing, a, a new the advent of a new thing, whether it's uh, the big reveal uh, with uh, the discovery of Odium or the uh, which was also when I finally uh, talked about uh, space vampires, um, there's like, uh, uh, we talk, we talk about the end of the uh, Deathlands trail, like Oregon trail end of things, and the start of things at Citra There's always kind of milestones that we can look forward to. And it's a, a good thing to have, I think as we, uh, as we meander through these uh, these olden tales, I was wondering if uh, you had any more thoughts or comments on uh, my adventure there. Nah, the main takeaway for me is just like like as soon as uh, we end our recording, I'm gonna look up that module and read through it, and ah, and yeah. see what I can poach from it because it sounds like a good one. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's decent. It was all right. Uh, I it was, it's a bit big for my taste. Like uh, having a whole goblin settlement and whatnot. Like uh, there's definitely there's there's a place for it. It's not something I like. There are other dungeons that are more uh, segmented and condensed that I would run more readily because they're a bit less messy. You know. With, with this thing, you can end up with situations where, like, a lot of goblins end up running into a fight if the characters don't, like, maneuver carefully. Because they're in the goblin settlement, down in their tunnels. Um, yeah. I guess that was it, eh? Nothing else? Not me. Well, hey. If you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes or follow us, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. If you want to uh, uh, see our show notes, our supplemental materials, check out that uh, neat giant frog that I drew, all those doodles we were referencing. You can find those on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Uh, yeah, don't steal because it's probably haunted. Don't read too much occult lore or you'll get corrupted. And don't take on too many heat tokens at once or you'll blow your load. Uh, level up if the Caltrop core game system you have created accommodates that. Oh, yeah. I never explained, actually. Another key part <laughs> of all these games is that the instead, like, or at least in Ceremony and Shadow and a Observer, like you divide your campaign up into chapters or whatever or adventures whatever you divide your campaign up into the way it works is that every chapter start you start at zero
corruption or obsession or whatever. Um, and as long as you do not use up your endurance stat or exceed your corruption limit or whatever uh, before the end of that chapter, then you can go... That character can be brought into the next chapter or a future chapter with their stats brought back to zero. So it's like either you are succumbed... Like in the case of Ceremony and Shadow, either you are killed in the course of like your pursuit of occult knowledge, you succumb to corruption, or you are able to come back and go on the quest for occult knowledge on another occasion. And that is like the equivalent to progression. There's also with Ceremony Shadow, I have an idea that every time a character um, manages to get through a chapter without succumbing to corruption or dying, uh, the GM may choose to increase their resilience by a certain amount so that they can withstand more the next time. Um, but the real thing of progression here is that like each time the GM is going to set a different limit. And so, you know, you might generally have a progression that is like, okay, your first session Maybe you have a limit of 10 corruption points, but then if you survive that, your character is like that much more, uh, has that much more mastery of occult knowledge. And then the next one they go into with a limit of like 30 points. And then it's like they're, they become a more powerful character, not because their stats have advanced, but because they can take on more tokens and therefore add more and more to their roles. It's all just a gamble of, like, how many do you take on before you can't come back? How many times can you blow your load before the studio doesn't, or, or the, the task force doesn't call on your services anymore? <laughs> that That's, like, the end of the introductory paragraph explaining the main, the sort of, the central <laughs> thrust of the game. Yeah. The first stat, thrust. Take care, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>